From Fridays to Future Digital, this is the 10th episode of The Voice of the Youth, Beyond the Movement, The People of FFF, with Grace Tobin, Grace Young, and Eden Summerlin. Fridays to Future Digital is a youth-led movement running digital campaigns to create change and make the movement more accessible. meeting with a neuropsychologist who's like testing me for autism, ADHD, all the good stuff. And she asked me about my special interest. And by the way, a special interest is like an intense interest that, on a, that on, an autistic person has. So of course, I delight her with my many tales of climate activism last year. And eventually she was like, yo, Grace, we, we, we need to move on. We have a limited time here. Anyway, hi, let's talk about neurodiversity and climate change. Hi, neurodiversity and climate change is one of my special interests. I'm Grace, to- I'm Grace Tobin and I use she, they pronouns and I'm from Northern Ireland. Hi, I'm Grace Young. I use she, her pronouns and I'm from the US. I have ADHD and autism. Today's special guest is Eden Summerlin. Welcome, Eden. Hi, my name's Eden Summerlin. I use they, them pronouns and I am the lead administrator of an autistic self-advocacy account on social media called the Autistic Cats. And I'm also a climate activist. Yeah, I, I'm, the, I'm one of the accessibility coordinators of FF Digital. And um, one of my, spe- I, I have many special interests, but one of my current ones is, is Full Metal Alchemist, which is a really good show. That's Hi. Great. Hi, Aidan. Can you explain to our listeners what neurodiversity is and what it's like to live as a neurodivergent person? Yes. So neurodiversity basically just means that in all of humanity, there are many different ways for brains to be. And one of those ways is to be autistic. Another way is to be neurotypical. Another way is to have ADHD and all these things can also overlap. Like I'm autistic and I have ADHD and um, I consider autism to be a disability. It's a lifelong developmental disability. And so it comes with a lot of challenges, but it also gives me some unique strengths And I think that those strengths can be particularly useful in the context of activism and fighting climate change. That sounds like a lot of ableism to me. Can you explain to my listeners what ableism is? Yeah, so ableism is the oppression of and discrimination against disabled people. And it can manifest in a lot of different ways. And in the context of neurodivergence or autism and other conditions that are similar to it, it can manifest as people having um, discriminatory attitudes towards autistic traits and behaviors because we're perceived as socially awkward or... um, too much, too intense, all these different things. And um, 
there are also a lot of negative stereotypes about autism specifically. Um, so that can be kind of hard to combat. Yeah, one of the reasons why it took me so long to get diagnosed with autism ADHD was because like, when you imagine like an autistic kid, you probably imagine like, I don't know, a five-year-old white boy who really likes trains and doesn't talk. And like, I was not that five-year-old white boy, not even when I was five, surprise, surprise. And even though like, I, like I knew I thought I was autistic for a long time, but like, it was hard for me to get anyone else to believe that. And then and then, you know, like when other people keep telling you, oh, no, 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 you're fine. You're normal. All your struggles are just in your head. Your struggles aren't, you know, real. Then like you start to believe that too. Same with ADHD, like, especially because the picture of someone with ADHD is again, probably like a like 10 year old, maybe like a 10 year old white boy who like is like throwing paper airplanes during class. I was never that 10 year old white boy, but like I still struggled and that, that, like, that's like something they had to unlearn. Like just like, like my struggles, even though they're not vis- visible, they still are struggles. And I had to just learn how to deal with this stuff on my own. I didn't get diagnosed until like last month. Like that's how I'm 16. That's how long it took me. And like, I had to basically go throughout 11 years of school, like without without that help I had to like teach myself my own coping mechanisms I had to like teach myself how to function because no one else would teach it to me wow um I I I I think I think uh I think there are struggles that both come with being um with be, with being diagnosed and struggles that come and struggles that come with being early diagnosed I was I was diagnosed when I was a when I was about eight but then I was uh, but then I was put through, uh, but then I was put through, uh, like the medical model of disability. Yeah, and especially like in our society, so much like weight is put on like how well you look like you're doing, like how much money you're making, or like in my case, because I'm still in school, like how well you're doing in school, and like especially with the whole like special ed or gifted children model like I didn't fit into either of those I like I was doing way too well in school to ever be put in special ed but I like like I was like just under the amount of points needed to like be in some sort of gifted program and by the way gifted programs they're not like they're they're not a good model either especially because like they I mean even though I wasn't in one like I have a lot of friends who were and like they basically teach you that like your only value is in your intelligence. And oftentimes, like, they'll raise you to, like, only know how to pursue grades. And once you grow up, you, like, don't really know how to do other things. And so, like, in that respect, like, I'm glad I didn't, I wasn't put in, like, a gifted program. Uh, But even then, like, because I was doing so well in school, it didn't, like, I feel like it didn't really matter to, like, teachers how much I was struggling just because my grades were fine. I uh well I well I well I my grades were fine but I still but I still got a but I still got a send statement uh and a and a full time and a full time classroom assistant and and extra time in exams. Yeah, I had a lot of accommodations to Grace Tobin. I was diagnosed at the same time you were at around age eight or nine, and um. 
I never had a classroom aid, but I did have a lot of accommodations to get through school. And it was pretty interesting for me because I was placed in a gifted program when I was in elementary school. And then I moved to a different state. And then in that state, I wasn't placed in the gifted program, but I did have accommodations like extra time on tests. And then eventually I needed to be able to type things instead of handwrite them, like especially essays, because it was very hard for me to organize my thoughts if I couldn't type and go back and correct things. So there's definitely a mix. And I did have trouble sometimes getting the accommodations that I needed because my teachers were like, well, you're so smart. Why are you struggling with these things? And like, my parents wanted me to be able to get help with life skills things through school. And they told me that my grades were too good to be put in the program. So we considered for maybe a couple years putting me in a specialist school just for autistic kids who also have this profile of like high achieving grades, but also uh, needing help with life skills and other things. Fortunately, we didn't really have to do that, but it was definitely a consideration. And I feel like the school system is not really set up to fully meet the needs of autistic students. Well, the, 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 well, our, uh, well, our modern school system was set up to uh, to train people to work in factories. So it yeah. doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like, and it seems like neurotypicals don't understand that if you're good at, that if you're good at X, it doesn't mean you're good at Y. Yeah. Yeah. And because... just for our listeners, neurotypical basically means a person who's not neuro- neurodivergent. So a person who would be considered to have like a quote unquote normal brain. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's an important point that you bring up Grace Tobin about the workforce aspect of it because our modern our modern school system is set up to basically train people to enter the capitalist workforce and autistic people being disabled were not really built to be productive in that way and Uh, so it's harder for us to conform to that kind of system I, 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 uh, I define a disability as, as having a different brain or body that, that affects how you can, uh, that, that means you can contribute less to the workforce. Yeah. Under capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of extractivist system where the goal is maximizing profit and production. Yeah. And like uh, another thing that gets to me is when some of us are valued because, because of like how, how, how like an autistic brain works, we, we have like super, super intense interests. And sometimes that will translate to, you know, that like stereotypical math genius autistic. He, for example, like, like I, the, the guy who invented computers, yeah, he, he was autistic and people, people always say, oh, this is why autistic people are so great. We can do things like this. And like I had it in my mind, even before like I knew what autism was, I had it in my mind that because like I couldn't 
I was having so many problems socially, but because I knew how intelligent I was that as long as I could be that person, as long as I could be that super genius who like invented computers or something, then my, then my life would have worth. And I'm still learning to like, I'm still learning to unlearn that. And even that, like, even if I don't do something like invent, like invent a new, like revolutionary device, I still have worth. Yes. And that's especially important for autistic people with higher support needs who really can't work in any traditional sense or autistic people who are burnt out and can't be productive or do some sort of great revolutionary thing for society. I think the point that we need to be making about disability is that everyone, everyone's life is inherently important and valuable just because and not because of what you do or what you produce. Yes, I completely agree with that. Uh, I, I, I often thought that I often thought that, that because I was I was labeled high functioning that I would have uh, that that I had some hidden special skill that that would like revolutionize the, the world and that uh, and that uh, uh, and that um uh, and that and that everyone would uh, and and that that was what what I would what I was worth and that made uh, and that made me and it made me depressed to be seen as an or as an ordinary person. Yeah, I think we need to be like very enthusiastic about it being good to just be a normal human being. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Do you want to go into more discussion of climate? Yeah, uh, yeah. We just waiting to see if if Grace Young wanted to say anything. Mm-hmm. I I think we can move on. It's okay. Uh, would you say that ableism translates to the climate movement? For example, I'm thinking about how, as an environmentalist, there's pressure for me to switch to renewable energy uh, tariff, even as a disabled person. I currently don't own my own home, and I'm likely not going to be able to own my own home uh, in the future. I can't help but feel like I'm not a true climate activist because of this. Do you agree with me that this is ableism? Yeah, I think it is. And I think we need to recognize that a lot of autistic and disabled people and other neurodivergent people, we can't do the same things as everyone else because we don't have the same privilege and access to resources as everyone else. And a lot of us can't be independent. We can't own our own cars. Like I can't even drive uh, I can't, you know, live in my own place and get my own solar panels and all that stuff. And the other thing people need to realize is that managing a home or managing, like trying to be sustainable and all that stuff requires a lot of executive function and planning and knowledge of systems and being able to fill out forms and do all this stuff with other people. And a lot of us need a substantial amount of help in order to be able to do those things. And some of us may not be able to do them at all. So it's important for people who actually can do those things to do them so that the rest of us don't 
need to do them when it's not easy for us to. Yeah. And I think honestly, part of this is even though like, for example, in FFF, one of our main like slogans is listen to the science. Like when someone comes up to like, say I'm holding a sign, someone comes up to me and says, well, you're literally a 14, 15, 16 year old girl. What do you know about climate science? Like, why should I listen to you? And my answer will be, you don't have to listen to me. I'm telling you to listen to the people who do know what they're talking about. And those people, and when I say those people, I usually mean climate scientists or indigenous people. And the reason I say indigenous people is because indigenous people have been caring for the earth for, for millennia. And a lot of creating climate solutions involves listening to their knowledge and using what they know. But as far as as far as the science fields, as far as the science field goes, like there is a reason why people keep recommending us to, oh, individual people need to do this and do this. And sure, part of that comes from like propaganda from corporations. We like it's pretty common knowledge in climate spaces that the reason why recycling became a huge cultural thing was because the plastic industry wanted us to keep using plastic without feeling guilty about it. Same with littering, same with, you know, anything, all these like individual actions. Yeah, it was literally, it was literally BP who invented, who invented the, uh, who invented uh, the, the concept of the car, of, of an individual's carbon print. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an important point, especially for disabled people who can't do all these individual things, it's like there needs to be a way bigger focus on the systemic things and the big corporations who are doing these things. And we need to stop pitting individuals and different marginalized groups against each other because we're not being perfect on an individual level. Like we need to just join together and work towards common goals and try to change the big systems that are forcing us to have to make these choices that are really not good choices. Yeah. And in academia, what we need is we need more disabled people. We need more people of color. We need more women. We need, we need more queer people. But there is a reason why we are not already represented in those spaces, especially like me, me going into those spaces, they're not, they're not super nice to brown people. They're not super nice to disabled people. And like, we have to fight just to be in those spaces, which why it's so much harder for like academic research to be where it needs to be in terms of not, not being super white, abled, abled, everything centric. Yes. Now, do you want to talk about how autistic people and disabled people are more affected by the climate crisis. Um, every every time I, I take like a taxi to a place instead of like a bus or a bus or a train or get a lift for my mom, I feel like I feel like a hypocrite. I feel like I should be cycling e- e- even even though I even though I can't uh, I, even though um and I'm, I'm I'm a self-diagnosed dyspraxic and will never be able to ride a bike. Or I feel like I should I should take public transport, even though I, even though I got a, um in Northern Ireland, our schools are run by the Board of Governors, and they give me a taxi to and from school. 
uh, because I was unable to use public transport and I couldn't use it until I was until I was 16. Yeah, public transport and all that sort of thing can be inaccessible to autistic people. Like, for example, um, I live in New Jersey and I go to school in Vermont in the United States and um, an easy way to get from where I live in New Jersey up through uh, Massachusetts and into Vermont is the Amtrak line. But in order to do that, you have to go to Penn Station in New York City and transfer trains. And it's too overstimulating for me and confusing to know what to do when. And so I have a really hard time like locating the information and getting where I need to go. I get very easily disoriented. So every time I try to do that or I go on a train or something, I need someone to accompany me. And sometimes it's easier to just not do that and take a car instead. Um, So again, it's like a systemic problem of not having access to electric cars necessarily or that sort of thing where like a lot of people can't take public transport due to sensory issues or trouble with following instructions or like knowing what to do with directions and stuff like that. Yeah. And you know, what's funny about that? If like we had not even, not even autistic ADHD people, just people who dealt with that kind of sensory issues or dealt with struggling with, for example, oh my God, did I, did I leave my backpack on the train? Checks. Okay. I did not leave my backpack on the train. Five seconds later, did I leave my backpack on the train? Checks again. If like people who had those kind of struggles were involved in the like designing and planning of public transit systems, I feel like the public transit systems would be a lot more accessible to us. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. That's, Let's not forget that wheelchair users literally had to change, uh, literally has to cha- had to chain themselves to themselves to buses so that they could get on a bus. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. Uh, have you have you not have you not seen that before? It was part of the, it was part of the disability uh, rights movement. Like um, like you know the way there was like a black liberation rights movement and. And yeah. the queer liberation movement that was mm-hmm. uh, that was part of them, and and um and and um and the and uh, wheelchair users would like crawl up the steps and stuff, and chain themselves to the buses and stuff to make things more accessible for wheelchair users. Yeah, that's the other thing about public. Trans- oh, so that was a protest thing, like chaining yourself yes. to the bus does not do anything. Yeah. It is a protest. Okay, yes, okay, it is it. a protest. <laughs> and and even even though technically like in the United States, things have to be accessible, at least on paper. There is a lot of huge issues with accessible public transportation, just in terms of like the physical aspects, like stairs and if wheelchair lifts are broken or if elevators are out of order and stuff like that. Like, in addition to being autistic, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. And so Sometimes I need to use um, 
like a walker or a wheelchair or crutches in order to get around. And it's extremely difficult to use a walker if I'm getting on and off a train or like trying to use the subway or something like that, especially in New York City, because while like technically there are ways for it to work, the elevators are often broken and out of order or super far away from the station where you get off or something like that. And even even with non-public transportation like Ubers or something, you have to request a special size of car in order to be able to fit things like that in there, which costs more money. So it can be a lot more expensive and difficult for disabled people to travel anywhere. Yeah. Before we move on, do we also want to talk about plastic straws? Because that's that's something that's a big topic of conversation, like in like disabled climate spaces. Yeah. Oh, don't get me started on plastic straws. Sam, I'm getting you started on plastic straws, Grace Coven. <laughs> that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like plastic straws don't even make up don't even make up like a percentage of, of plastic waste to fit into its own category. Yeah, instead of like focusing on odd fishing equipment, people choose to people choose to focus on something that some disabled people need to live. Saying yeah. that a disabled person's life is worth more than it than this than the life of a sea turtle. And speaking yeah. of that, do we you want to just explain like why some disabled people need plastic straws? Yeah, I mean, I actually have personal experience with this because I have been in a situation where I needed a straw and I couldn't move because um, in addition to Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I also have POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which basically just messes with the autonomic nervous system. And sometimes when I have POTS attacks, I become paralyzed in my arms and hands and I also can't like sit up and I need to drink like Gatorade or some other thing with a lot of electrolytes in it in order to make me better so um a few years ago I had a POTS attack at summer camp and I had to um lay down in the nurse's like office and I needed someone to use a plastic straw to put in a bottle of Gatorade and like hold it up to my mouth so I could drink it and that's just one example of a situation where like I could not have gotten that liquid in any other way and the fact that a straw was available was really helpful in the moment and like I guess it didn't need to be plastic necessarily in terms of like made from oil, but it needed to be that shape and it needed to be flexible in the same way that plastic straws are. So like if it had been made of a biodegradable plastic or something, but shaped the exact same way and functioned the same way it it could have worked. But I don't think the technology is there yet to produce that kind of thing on a mass scale and it's pretty rare. So, like, eventually, obviously, 
a different form of plastic could work, but metal straws and bamboo straws and paper straws don't necessarily work as well, if at all, for a lot of disabled people. Yeah, and even with metal straws, if you if you have a metal straw, you need to be able to wash like that super tiny space. And if you are already disabled, you might have a disability that makes you not able to do that. Another thing is we do have biodegradable tech plastic technology. In fact, like I remember in like middle school engineering class, they were teaching us about like like this like group of teenage girls who had created edible straws that were like plastic, but like okay, no, if they were edible, they could not be plastic. But <laughs> the point is like, we have that technology. The thing is like, that's not, we're not, people are not funding like, you know, biodegradable straws. They're funding, you know, just as an example of fracking in the Kavango Basin. But for like, we need to be funding like that kind of technology, not, you know. Uh, not, not drilling for, not drilling for more, for more fossil fuels that we can't use anymore. Exactly. Like fossil fuel based plastics obviously need to be phased out because we can't use fossil fuels in general anymore. But I know that there's a way for us to make biodegradable plastic straws that function the same way that don't cause allergic reactions and stuff. We just have to have the willpower to actually do that. Yeah. Do you want to move on to our next point? Yeah, uh, that was being vegetarian or vegan. Yeah. Um, so in terms of that, like, I've also had experience with this because um, I have some gastrointestinal problems that were causing me to be severely or not severely, but like significantly underweight for a large portion of um, late middle school and high school. And I pretty much couldn't afford to not eat meat because I needed a lot of protein in order to just survive. And um, being vegan or vegetarian just wasn't an option for me at that point because I needed things that I enjoyed eating that tasted good that I would actually eat and be able to keep down but that also had high protein content and all sorts of things like that. So there are medical reasons why people may not be able to stop eating meat. Um, But I feel like the important thing to note is that like the main problem with eating meat is the way that factory farming is done. Yeah. And for millennia, like hundreds of thousands of years, humans have eaten meat in a sustainable way. And it's only recently because of the industrialization of agriculture that it's become this gigantic problem for the climate. Mm -hmm. And I don't really think that eating meat per se is the problem. It's the way that everything functions and how that happens, how it gets done. That is the main issue. Yeah. Yeah. And before before I talk about the racism in saying, oh, you cannot eat meat at all, I just want to say, as far as the drilling in the K- Kavango Basin goes, if you if you follow Kavango Alive on Instagram, that's 
K-A-V-A-N-G-O, Alive. They have lots of good information on what is happening, what you can do to stop it. But as far as eating meat goes, like there is a, a like racist part to this because for like millennia, many cultures have been able to eat meat in a way that was not exploitive. And it says a lot about our current society and about like white supremacy and racism that like people cannot see a way to like eat meat that isn't exploited exploitative because the way like the way we have we have the way we have our agriculture system set up yes it is exploiting the land yes it is exploiting animals yes it is bad but it wasn't for many years in many countries and that does not necessarily mean that like just because you cannot figure this out doesn't mean that everyone else hasn't figured it out already a very good example is banning like in america banning indigenous people from hunting like i'm sorry but just because you cannot hunt in a way that doesn't decimate the environment doesn't mean that they can't exactly as far as zero waste goes now zero waste is like a white mom trendy thing the real zero waste people are my parents who never throw anything out ever and reuse reuse paper towels and you know like it's not necessarily about like oh i'm like never wasting anything at all because some of us have a culture of not wasting in the first place. And like, we know how to not like waste miles and miles of paper towels. We know how to do that stuff and don't need to be taught. And another thing is like in Western society, it's, it's sort of a cultural thing to not eat the entire animal and just throw away lots of parts of the animal. Yeah. Pig heart is good. Chicken feet is good. Y'all just think it's not. You know, like, like I, it's, yeah, if we yeah, like, my- you if we didn't like waste so much of so much of like the animals we killed, we could eat a lot. We could like eat the same amount of meat, which doesn't need to be that much meat. We could eat the same amount of meat and not be like producing millions I, and millions of chickens. You know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, my uh, my grandparents' generation they used to eat like they used to eat like every part of the pig, the ears, the the ears, the trotters, the heart, and and all and all of a sudden we stopped doing that for some reason. Yeah, I think it's wasteful and it doesn't fully value the life of the animal if you can't find a way to utilize every aspect of it. And I in a lot of indigenous cultures, that's what they do. They figure out a way to use all parts of the animal. Yeah. And that's a way of honoring the animal's life and like yeah. being grateful for, for all of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, also speaking of eco, eco-ableism, neurodivergent uh, people are and will be affected by the climate crisis more than our able counterparts. We know that we will see more pandemics as the climate and ecological crisis intensifies. Now, during the pandemic, I felt like the attitude was, don't worry, only disabled people will die. To make things worse, here in Northern Ireland, autistic people and or people with learning disabilities who were placed in, in the ICU were given do not resuscitate orders. That basically means doctors had to let them die. Are there any more ways uh, that disabled people will be impacted by the climate crisis? Yes, um, that's a very good example. And I think it is eugenicist, basically, to say 
oh, well, disabled people are the only ones that are going to die. So it's fine. We'll just let them die because it and it all goes back to an economic and social model that only values people's lives insofar as they can be productive and produce profit, which is like, okay, you you're disabled, which means you need supports and services and like aid from society, which is not necessarily going to be quote unquote returned because you can't be productive and produce profit and whatever. So therefore you're a burden and your life is not worth living. And there's no point in keeping you alive because you're just draining resources, which is just a horrible attitude and a very inhuman attitude and approach, but it's what's happening. And it wasn't just in Northern Ireland, like the UK, the United States, a lot of other countries, disabled people during the uh, coronavirus pandemic were being given do not resuscitate orders often against their will. And that says a lot about how disabled people are valued in society at large. Um, But it's not just that, like talking about natural disasters, like let's say a hurricane hits a highly populated area where there are a lot of disabled people and just focusing on autistic people let's say that there is um a a lot of autistic people in that area some of whom have high support needs and um get very upset by sudden changes well let's say that a group home where a bunch of autistic people live gets flooded and all these people have to move out to a shelter where they're with a bunch of other people, many of whom are strangers who they don't know. And what's that like in terms of the sensory environment? What's that like in terms of the sudden change? Like you're, these people are experiencing a great amount of stress and in a situation that is very damaging. And of course it's going to exacerbate all of the negative aspects of being autistic because that's what happens when we get overwhelmed. Um, And then another part of it is for autistic people, the unemployment rate for college educated autistic adults is extraordinarily high. And if we don't have the money to be able or to be able to afford insurance or other things like that, that would protect us in the circumstance where our home or apartment gets damaged in some sort of climate related disaster, a lot of those people are going to be risking homelessness and a lot of other things because they don't have the money and resources to navigate the systems that could potentially assist them. And so I think dealing with the effects of the climate crisis is going to require 
a big focus on providing caregiving and support resources to disabled people who are in this kind of situation. I, I, I have more points to add to this. Okay. <laughs> um uh, there was uh, there was uh, I was watching I was watching this video uh, by on YouTube by uh, climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe and it said that and it said that that the more the world warms the more aggressive people will become and and uh, and because disabled people are often uh, are considered like weak vulnerable easy targets to pick on for people to take their aggression out. Uh, they would be um uh, they would be uh they would be more uh like they would be more likely to be targets of uh hate crimes or or filicides as global temperatures increase yeah and and the way that and the way society portrays uh uh filicide um it it portray it victim blames uh a victim blames the victim, saying that it was their fault because they're such a burden on the society, on their parents, on their carers, on their family. Yeah, that is an important point. And a lot of it has to do with, I'm sure there's some sort of like physical effects of heat on the human psyche, but a lot of it has to do with stress. Like when people in a society are more stressed and our model for understanding things hasn't changed. So people are still locked in this mindset of like competition and scarcity um, and like having to fight with one another over resources that added stress adds to aggression and people's desire to hurt people who they perceive as like taking away from their own access to resources and what you were saying about about uh, uh, about jobs uh all jobs are reliant on the, on the on the ecosystem and if the ecosystem is damaged then that means there'll be fewer jobs and with the employment rate at, at the minute that means there will be even more fewer jobs for disabled people if capitalism remains a dominant um the dominant ecosystem in our society. Yes. Yeah. I feel like that is an important point to make. And one of the main problems with capitalism is that it views eternal growth as the end all be all, but the earth is a finite ecosystem and you can't just take forever. You're going to run into limits eventually Mm-hmm. And if you don't recognize those limits and allow for degrowth and periods where things aren't growing or things are shrinking, then you're going to create catastrophe, which is ultimately what has happened. Yes, and and and, and just think, uh, thinking about back to the uh, to the two thousand and eight financial crisis, um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Instead of instead of blaming instead of blame, blaming it on on the people who were actually responsible, which was bankers, uh, they were blamed on they were blamed on uh, on immigrants and this and disabled people. Yeah. Uh, and and that led and that led uh, and that led to and that led to uh, 
uh, and disabled people were blamed because apparently we fraudulently claimed, claimed benefits and that apparently and that apparently meant that, that there was no money left for people yeah and and as we see more financial crises that are caused by the climate the, the climate crisis that would mean that disabled people will be scapegoated and the government responded to uh, uh to the scapegoat of disabled people by reducing our benefits by replacing uh DLA with PIP, which yeah. meant to uh which meant to cut uh which meant to cut disability benefits by twenty percent. And some people have actually died because they weren't that they weren't able to get their benefits. Yeah. And that again goes back to the the valuing of production over care work. Yes. Um disabled people being viewed as burdens and as taking resources away from everyone else when what if we had a system where care and human welfare was actually the center and the focal point of the economy and imagine how much better things could be not just for disabled people but for literally everyone yes we wouldn't have to compete over resources yes just for the sake of time, I want to move on to the next point, and that is how can activists make the climate movement more accessible? For example, in FF Digital, me and Grace Tobin were we're both coordinating our accessibility and inclusivity working group. We've we've made a policy on tone indicators, and tone indicators are essentially a way to clarify tone and messages, especially helpful for autistic people. For our listeners, if you've never, if you don't know what tone indicators are, look them up. They're great, and you should start using them. And we're like working on other ways to make instructions more clear. Yes. Um, One great way to make things more accessible is releasing materials in plain language. Um, And I don't know if um, Fridays for Future has done this yet. I feel like most things are pretty easy to understand, but um, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, I believe, has kind of a toolkit on how to write things in plain language. Which you mean is- the Easy Read Toolkit? Yeah, I, I found that yeah. the other day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we started we started an Easy Read Working Group in, in Fridays for Future Digital. Yeah, that's great. Um, so yeah, that's one huge way to make things more accessible, especially to people who are autistic or who have intellectual disabilities is easy read materials. And I'm really glad that you guys are using that toolkit. That's super exciting. Um, So yeah, tone indicators, easy read stuff. um, And then for like in-person events, like marches and things, um, I think it could be useful to have like quiet zones in certain areas or um, people who can go around and just make sure that everyone's okay, that no one's like overstimulated. Um, And I was thinking earlier that it could be cool to have like a little autistic contingent of of climate marches (laughs) for people to meet each other and, you know, have support during the march or whatever. Um, Like if people have stim toys and they want to share them or something. um, (laughs) That would be so cool. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah. Extra earplugs for anyone who needs them. I'm I'm stimming right now. Yeah. With my my, my band. Yeah. You know, this is a recording, so they will not see this, but I, this was supposed to be a circle. I played with it so much it broke, but I love it. (laughs) 
<laughs> like chain fidget. I'm doing this with my hands or gel, just messing with my fingers. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, like I think it would be super cool for there to be like neurodivergent specific contingents or like places where autistic people can march with other autistic people and make that like a more safe and supportive environment, especially at a big march where it can be kind of overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. So also for our listeners, when we say ND, that's an acronym for neurodivergent. Yeah. So even though the climate movement can be inaccessible for ND people, there seems to be a lot of us involved in it. And Greta is a very famous example. Why do you think that is? And do you think the movement needs more ND people? Yeah. So I think one big reason for why there are so many neurodivergent people and autistic people specifically in the climate movement is because of the way autistic people process information and the way that we interact with the social world. Like, a lot of us have a very low tolerance for cognitive dissonance and like double think on a lot of different areas. We're not very good at dealing with like logical contradictions and like people saying one thing and doing another thing. Um, And we also tend to have very strong passions and, and a lot of times that can translate to special interests that relate to justice issues. Um, Like my lifelong overarching special interest has just been justice in, in all forms and like wanting things to be fair and wanting things to be logical in a way that's consistent with like morality and human rights and values and that sort of thing. Um, And then another important thing, which is just like a technicality on autistic processing is that while neurotypical brains tend to process information from the top down, where they'll like form an idea and then kind of project that into the world and then see things through that lens, autistic people tend to process information from the bottom up, which means that we just take information from the environment and then use that to build schema in our brains instead of projecting our own preconceived notions onto what's happening. And I think a lot of times that can make it easier for us to see clearly what's happening in situations where the emperor has no clothes, basically. Like, in that story, which I think is a great example of like a neurodivergent kid being like, what the heck are you guys talking about is the emperor has no clothes where this neurotypical society is like, yeah, the emperor totally has clothes on. Um, This is totally a thing that's happening. And they just their idea blinds them or prevents them from seeing the reality of the emperor being naked. And this autistic kid is like, "Uh, you guys are wrong, actually. (laughs) He doesn't have clothes on. No, like, I think like all of that to basically say, we don't take society's bullshit. Like when, (laughs) like when we're lied to, we call them out, you know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think 
I, I think we prioritize what we perceive as as just or log or, or rational or logical over uh, over what's socially acceptable, basically. Yeah. And that is such an important thing. Like if everyone just went with what was socially acceptable, society would be in an even worse place than it is now. Yeah. And I yes. think if people listen to us more, society would be in a better place than it is now. I agree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because as social outsiders, we have a useful perspective. Like like I'm I'm an anthropology major in college, which is the study of human culture and society and like just humanity as a whole. And like, I feel like there's a good reason why I'm going into anthropology. And I think in large part, it's because I'm autistic. And I've just, since I've never been part of like the in-group in school or whatever, and I've always been weird and strange and an outsider and somewhat of an alien in social situations, like, I think we have a good perspective to see what's happening on the inside. Whereas when you're in the middle of it, you won't necessarily know what's going on. It's like if you're a fish swimming in the ocean, you're not going to know what water is. You're not going to know what being wet feels like because it's just all you've ever known. But if you're on the outside and you know the difference, you can tell more easily the things that are going wrong or what specifically is happening. Yeah, I feel like I know like so much about etiquette and like how like social dynamics function because I spent so long watching them instead of being wrapped up in them. And like that's like that's partly why like I think we need we need a way for people to learn, you know, to learn things like this is how you treat a customer service person, right? This is how this is how you tip a waiter. And that's that's not from just osmosis because Some people do not know these things and it's a source of frustration for people when people are not, you know, acting how they should. And, but because like I've had to spend so much effort, like learning how to be polite to people, how to make them feel good, how to like, how to connect to them. And I've had to study it. Like, I know, I feel like I know that better than most people. Yeah, it's true. I think like it, comes naturally to a lot of neurotypical people but a lot of them don't necessarily recognize what they're doing or if they're doing something wrong quote unquote or hurting someone and the other thing is that I feel like neurotypical communication tends to be a lot less direct and things are not laid out things are not explicit whereas when autistic people are communicating we like to just get straight to the point yeah, I think the world would be a better place if NTs could just say what they mean. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a whole thing in Chinese culture, actually. And like, I mean, even like in Chinese culture, we tend to be a lot more direct than like, for example, American culture. But we have this whole thing where if someone offers you something, you have, to, even if you want it, you have to be like, no. And then they have to offer it again and you have to say no again. <laughs> and like, yeah. But like, that is like, that that is easy for me to pick up because it's so simple. Yeah. Yeah. And I... I actually studied Mandarin Chinese for seven years, starting in middle school. And it was interesting because my teacher, Sonasha, would explain like the differences between American and Chinese culture. And in a lot of ways, I was like, you know what? Chinese culture seems a little bit more autism friendly, at least in terms of social interaction. Because if you say something really blunt to someone like, about their appearance or whatever or something like that it's actually fine 
Like, like a lot of Americans will go to China and like interact with someone and someone like will point out that they have a big pimple on their face and they'll get offended. But it's like, that's just how it is in China. So... I think I I think in Japanese culture they uh, they don't make eye contact, mm-hmm. which is like again ideal for autistic people. Yeah. Another thing is Japanese public transit. Like the buses are actually quiet, and I feel like that would if American buses were quiet, then my experience on buses would be so much better. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Northern buses are are pretty quiet in my experience. I've never been on an American bus, though. American buses are incredibly loud. <laughs> the brakes, the squeaking, the gas release, like, everything about that is just, ugh, it's really loud. Um, but yeah, I think we're all talking about an important point, which is in order to understand your own culture and environment, you have to look at and learn from different cultures in different environments in order to gain perspective and like be able to compare things and evaluate which things you want to keep and which things you want to change about your own culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all of this is all of this to say, like, we are needed in the climate movement. We are needed in society. If you're here, that's a good thing because that means that you do want to listen to us. You do want to hear us opinions. And that's just really, really great. Yeah. So before we wrap up, Eden, where can we follow you on social media? Yeah. So um, the main places where the Autistic Hats is are Twitter and Instagram. Um, our Twitter handle is just at Autistic Hats. And then our Instagram handle is at the dot Autistic Hats. Um, and just and, can, you, can you spell that out? Yeah. So Autistic Hats is spelled A-U-T-I-S-T-I. C-A-T-S. And that about does us for the voice of the youth. See you in the next episode.